Good morning, everybody. Uh, today's scripture reading is out of Romans 1, verses 1 through 17. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Muted anymore. I'm unmuted. There we go. Good morning, everybody, and I uh, wanted to say happy Mother's Day to all our moms. Um, we're, we wouldn't be here without you, like literally. Um, before we start, let me open us in a word of prayer. Uh, Father, uh, we turn now to the book of Romans, and uh, Lord, I confess to you that I am excited to, uh, to work through this book, but also a bit intimidated because it is such a, a grand uh, theme that uh, Paul brings to us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would show us what we need to see, help us to understand your word, and uh, Lord, uh, help me to speak it clearly so that we may all gain from it. And uh, Father, we ask all of these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. So um, we finished the book of Exodus, and, and my outline for Exodus was God delivers us, God rules us, and then God with us. And I did that because I, I felt that the book of Exodus kind of followed this theme of the Exodus, the, the deliverance from Egypt. But then once they were out in the wilderness, once they had left, there was a lot of law, God giving rules and, and regulations. And then at a certain point that ended and the focus was really on the tabernacle. So it was God delivering them from Egypt, how we are saved. God rules us. What is the function of God's rule in our life? And then finally, God with us, that tabernacle was a promise of Jesus. And so I didn't go into a whole bunch of depth at the time on the law. Um, 
we covered it in, in a sermon and kind of gave a, a, a summary idea of the relationship between the Christian and the law. And so uh, had we gone into, well, actually we did go into a really good summary of it, which is we looked at the Ten Commandments. And so uh, if we had really spent some time in the law, uh, at points it would be confusing, and at other points it would, might have been uh, interesting, and some places it might be convicting. Uh, think about the Ten Commandments and, and kind of go through those in your mind and, and ask, how are you doing? Um, you shall have no, no God beside me. Uh, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Um, those kinds of things. You shall uh, um, observe the Sabbath. Uh, how, how are we doing on those? And if we're honest, if we really assess ourselves honestly, um, the answer might not be what we would hope it would be. Um, honor your mother and father. Uh, how, how well are we doing about that? Are we on top of that one? Um, don't murder. And then when you look at Jesus' commandments in, in the Sermon on the Mount, that's not just don't plunge a knife into somebody's heart. It's don't hate people. And so it, it builds and it kind of gets a little convinced, convicting uh, when we start thinking about what it is that God actually wants from us. What are we supposed to be like? And uh, one of the problems is we can then begin to either um, say, well, it's not, you know, God's just not really that uptight about it anymore. He's lacked off, which isn't true. He doesn't change. Or we can become so self-condemning that we think we're worthless, useless, there's no reason, and, and become despondent. And that's kind of the two directions that it can push us. What we're going to see in the book of Romans, but especially this morning in this introduction, is um, some really tremendously good news. And, uh, and that good news is what I'm calling the gospel according to Paul. Um, this is what Paul's message to us is, is the book of Romans is kind of his, his most succinct, his, his most complete way of presenting that to us. So as we look through the, the, uh, the book of Romans, um, this morning, I'll, we'll have to cover the, the typical introduction stuff. Um, uh, who wrote it? When did he write it? To whom did he write it? Why did he write it? And what's its theme? I'll try to cover that quickly. And then we'll look at uh, that first section, because I really think that first section sets us up for the rest of the book. So um, who wrote it? There's almost no dispute that Paul did. Um, there have been some cases in history where theologians, because this is what theologians do, We'll try to deny Paul's authorship, but none of them have really stood the test. Um, none of them really stand up. So it's even amongst the most critical scholars, people largely agree Paul wrote this. So we don't need to spend time on that. Um, when did he write it? When was this written? Because when he wrote it can help us understand a little bit of the context of it. So um, the section of uh, 8 through 14, kind of the middle there, uh, where he says, first, I thank my God. Um, through Jesus, that section right there uh, gives us some information that we can use to try to pin down exactly when the uh, letter was written. Um, early manuscripts, two, two of the earliest manuscripts that we have of Romans, um, the copyist, in other words, the person who transcribed it, wrote at the bottom of the, uh, the text that Paul wrote this from Corinth. So we know that he was most likely in Corinth at the time. And generally, people understand this to be written about 57 AD. Um, that really helps, doesn't it? Um, what, what was going on in 57 AD? Well, what was going on in 57 AD is Paul has, uh, remember when we went through Acts, Paul went on his first missionary journey, then he came back to Antioch, then he went on a second one, and then on his third one, uh, he decided that he would return to Jerusalem. And so uh, 
he, uh, he is heading back to Jerusalem. He's stopped in Corinth and he stops and he pens this, this letter. Uh, so to pin down some dates there in, in uh, Romans 16.3, he greets Pris, Prisca and Aquila. Prisca is just the diminutive of Priscilla. It's kind of the, the, um, the shorter way of, of saying it. Um, so Prisca and Aquila. So he's already met them. He knows them. But, um, and, and they're back in Rome because he's writing this to Rome. Well, in Acts 18, um, when he was in Corinth the first time, he, he meets uh, Priscilla and Aquila. And that's when they connect with uh, Apollos and they teach him a better way. But it says in Acts 18 too, that they were there, they were in Corinth because Claudius, the emperor, had expelled the Jews from Rome. So they were out of Rome and now they're, apparently they're back. Um, we don't know when Claudius issued this expel, expel, expel when he expelled the Jews, uh, but he was emperor from 41 to 54. And so the, ex, uh, the expulsion would have ended at his death. So that would have been back 54. They could have been back, you know, a couple of years later, about 57. Um, the next little clue is that Paul says, I long to see you. And uh, he says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far I've been prevented. So what he's saying is, I've never been to Rome yet when he wrote this. So we know that it's after he's met Aquila and Priscilla and before he heads to Rome. So when did he get to Rome? Well, um, he got to Rome. He's in Rome about 60 to 62 AD. Um, so we're not quite there yet. Um, before that, before he got to Rome, he was held in Caesarea for a couple of years. That was Acts 24. So that moves his imprisonment back to about 58 or so. Um, so when he traveled to Jerusalem, which was right before his imprisonment in Caesarea, he said he wanted to be in Rome or in Jerusalem, uh, hopefully by the day of Pentecost. So it seems like he would have been heading on his way to uh, Jerusalem around 57, uh, the spring of 58, something like that. So it does put us in that ballpark of 57 AD. Paul's writing during his trip to Jerusalem, he has no idea that when he gets there, he's heading to Rome, and so he writes to them. So that's about when it was written in Paul's career, what, what's going on in his life. Who did he write it to? Well, there's really not much of a dispute there. Verse 7 says, to those who are in Rome. Um, so he, he, he wrote to the saints in Rome. But even that has a, a kind of an interesting thing, is Paul's never been there. So Rome would have been one of those churches that Paul didn't personally start. Um, it was probably started, the theory is that it was started by Jews or proselytes who were in Jerusalem in Pentecost, that first Pentecost after Jesus' resurrection uh, from Acts chapter 2, because in, uh, in 2.10 it mentions um, visitors from Rome. So the theory is that some of these folks were in Jerusalem for Pentecost. They heard the gospel preached by the apostles at that first breaking forth of the gospel when the Spirit sent them into the streets. And when they returned to Rome, they, uh, they began to share this great news with other people there. Um, if that's true, and it, and it seems most likely, then the early Roman church would probably have been predominantly Jewish. Um, there wasn't really a, a clear understanding amongst the church for a while to figure out that they could preach to the Gentiles. It was it, What we see in Acts is the Holy Spirit had to kind of lead them there to say, yes, you can do that. So the, the early church would have probably been uh, predominantly a Jewish thing. So when Claudius then expels the Jews at whatever time he did that, um, the Gentile Christians 
proselytes or whoever would have been able to stay. And so maybe that began to change the complexion of the church. It began to turn from Jewish, uh, perhaps to more, uh, more mixed or more Gentiles at that time. So that's who we wrote it to. And now what's happened is, you know, the Jews have returned. And so we've got this church that is most likely a mix of Jew and Gentile, uh, perhaps skewing a little bit more to the Gentile side. That's what it looks like anyway. Um, so um, why did he write? Why did he write to the Romans? Uh, this can be hard to figure out. It's, it's a little hard to pin down exactly why he wrote. Uh, so he doesn't seem to be addressing any particular theological issue. He covers a lot of ground in the book of Romans. So like when in Galatians, he writes to the Galatians because Judaizers had come and said, you can't be Christian until you become Jews. So you have to be circumcised and you have to follow these dietary laws and then you can become a Christian. Um, and, and so Paul writes to the Galatians and says, that's not how it works. You didn't become a Christian by obeying the law. You're not going to grow as a Christian. There was the theological issue. The Thessalonians, both of the Thessalonian records or uh, epistles, that seems to be Paul addressing a concern they had um, that the other believers who had died and Jesus hasn't returned yet, what's going to happen to them? So there's this, this anxiety towards the return of Christ and, and the end times. And so they, they asked Paul, what about those folks? And so Paul kind of writes to them and addresses the issues of the resurrection and Christ's return. Um, the Corinthian epistles, first and second Corinthians, um, they have apparently, if you read through it, it sounds like Paul is answering questions that they've sent him. So what about this? Well, this is what's happened. And what about that? Well, here's what's going on. So he's addressing some of their questions, but also he's, he's addressing some of their behavioral issues. They've got some real sin problems in the camp that he writes to. So that's an example of Paul writing to a church with an obvious issue that he's addressing. Um, and we just don't see anything like that in Romans so much. So one of the theories is um, in verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 20, he says that he doesn't want to preach again where Christ has already been preached. So he kind of recalls for them this. Remember, this is at the end of his third missionary journey. So he has gone through what he called Asia, what we would call Turkey. He's gone through there a couple of times. He's gone through across the Aegean Sea. He's gone through Greece. So he's covered that. He knows that down in, in uh, um, northern Africa, the, the church has been there and has been growing because uh, Apollos is from there. There was uh, people from Cyprus and Cyrene who had come to Antioch. So he feels like that, that basin right around uh, the Mediterranean has been covered. So he writes to them, he says, I don't want to continue to preach here because I think I've done what I need to do. I, I've covered the, the bases that I want to cover. And then he says what he's planning on doing is he wants to stop by Rome and see them on his way to Spain. So he's heading into Europe proper, actually. So perhaps what he's thinking is, is I'm done with this base, this, this area. So my Antioch base, my church in Antioch, which is in what we would call Syria, that's a little too far removed from where I'm planning on going next. My next stop I'm hoping is going to be into Spain, then possibly north into Gaul and, and in that area. So what he's looking for is he's maybe is looking for a new base of operations, a new place to, to connect with. And he's looking and thinking, you know, Rome would just be optimum because there's so much uh, um, travel in and out of Rome. I, I should be able to, to launch, launch from there, return there when I need to. Um, so the idea is perhaps he's writing to them to say, look, I want to use you guys as my new base of operations for my mission. 
And so what the book of Romans is, is him explaining to them, look, you need to understand exactly what I mean by um, salvation coming to the Gentiles, because I'm, a, I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. So I want you to understand what I mean and what I don't mean. There's been some confusion. And if you're on board with that, I, I want you to, to feel connected to me. I want you to, to know me. That's why I'm anxious to come to you is because I'm ready to move into my next, my fourth missionary journey. Um, so that's a theory is he's, he's planning on connecting with the Roman church as a way to launch his, his next missionary endeavor, which would be heading towards, um, um, towards Europe. So that brings us to actually, okay, well then what's the theme of the book? And it actually connects with why he wrote it pretty well. Um, there are a bunch of different takes on this idea of what's the theme of the book of Romans. Uh, for example, the word law, nomos, occurs 47 times in Romans. 47 times he uses the word law. That is more than all of his other epistles if you add them all together. So perhaps what, what he's doing is he's talking about law and grace. Maybe that's what his, his theme is. Um, if you read through it, you'll notice there's a lot of discussion of the Jews and the Gentiles back and forth. And, and um, especially like think of chapter 11 with the olive tree and these branches were cut out. Those were unfaithful Jews and wild branches are brought in and those are Gentiles. So maybe that's the theme is, is um, he's addressing that issue of the sudden influx of Gentiles into the church and how they can handle that. that that's a possibility as well. Um, one of the commentators, probably one of the best commentaries on the book of Romans was written by a, a professor named Douglas Moo. Um, and Doug Moo has a little bit of wisdom on this. And, and I remember when I read that, it stopped me in my tracks and that made me back up and reevaluate what I think the theme is. And here's what he has to say. He says, to make the relationship between the two people, Jews and Gentiles, the theme of Romans with the transformation of the individual as subordinate and supporting concept is to reverse the relationship in the letter, to confuse the background with the foreground. So what Moo is saying is, if we focus primarily on the relationship between Jew and Gentile and say, well, yeah, you got to focus on that because the individual has been changed. So you're putting it backwards. Um, his, his emphasis is on that individual transformation. What has Jesus done in you? And so um, we don't ignore the issue of uh, the relationship of the two people, uh, but we don't focus on that either. And since we're internally changed by the gospel, we can and we have to consider law. That's why law gets mentioned so much. Um, so what my question or my, my idea for the theme is, is it is about what God is doing in individuals, um, but it raises the question, and the theme answers the question, is there anyone who can't be saved? Is there anyone who's beyond salvation? If, if um, Are they savable? Will God save them, whoever them is? Whoever them is, they ain't us. And so that's the idea is maybe, uh, maybe that's what's being addressed. And so it hits on the theme of Jew and Gentile. Uh, they could be asking that same question. It hits on the theme of law because... Uh, what we'll see next week is everybody's under law, and and are they, um, are are you able to be saved if you're not keeping the law perfectly? So for me, where I go with a theme statement for this is uh, is verse 16. Um, it's salvation to everyone who believes, and I think that really encapsulate, encapsulates the book of Romans well because it starts with the word salvation. Um, salvation 
means that we need to be saved. We have to be saved. We have to be rescued from something. And what is that? Well, that's sin. And so we have to have salvation because we have this problem called sin. So we need to be saved. And it's salvation to everyone. It's salvation to, it, it answers that question, who can be saved? In our day and age, it's really not an issue of can Jews or Gentiles be saved? We don't really have that much of an issue. But we can wrestle with that question, could that person be saved? Could God actually do a work in that person and redeem them? Um, is there anybody who's beyond it? But he, Paul's answer there is it's salvation to everyone. So that's great news. That's tremendous news. Everyone can be saved. And then the last part asks the question, well, then how are we saved? What is it that we do to be saved? It's salvation to everyone who believes. It's, it's salvation to everyone who believes, not everyone who performs well, not everyone who, who does enough good to get into heaven. It's salvation to everyone who believes. What must we do? We must believe. What, what, what must we believe? And that's what comes this morning. That's what we're going to look at this morning, um, is what we must believe to be saved. So I, I think that is tremendous good news, is we can go forward into a world that is broken, that uh, a nation that is, current, is, is continuing to turn away from, uh, from what we hold as true Christian values, makes the church really odd, really stand out as strange. And we go with this promise. It's salvation to everyone who believes. What tremendous news. It also can help us. Remember at the beginning I said, so if we look at the law, and the law begins to weigh on us, and we think, well, I'm not being good enough, or why did I sin that way again, or why can't I get my act together on this one particular issue? Um, what you're being told, what Paul is promising us here is, what you must do is you must believe. And what you must believe is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then there's power in that. Then there's redemption in that. So let's take a look at this. Uh, let's dive into the letter now. So the first uh, six verses is kind of Paul's introduction. He introduces himself um, in his epistles. He'll always start with his, you know, who it's from. Um, then there's a little bit of a, a kind of an introduction to the church and then uh, who it's to. And then there's the, the, what we see in verse six, grace and peace to you from our God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So in Romans, his introduction of who he is is much more elaborate than we're used to. And what it says is tremendous. So let's work through this a little bit. He introduces himself, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. So he's, his name is Paul. They, they know of who he is. He's a servant. Um, the, the word there is doulos, is, is slave, a bondservant. So he is a slave to Christ Jesus. And how is he a slave? He's called to be an apostle. Um, the word apostle, I, I mentioned this when we went through Acts, um, when we hear apostle, we think 12 apostles. And so um, is Paul saying that he's one of the 12? Well, we kind of run into an issue then because at the beginning of Acts, they decide that Matthias would take Judas's place. And so they have 12. And so is Paul the 13th apostle? And it gets a little dodgy. Apostle, when we use it in the New Testament, can mean a couple of things. It could be referring to the 12. They're usually identified as the 11 or the 12. It can also be what we would today call a missionary, um, because what apostle, apostle means is one who is sent, uh, so an emissary, a messenger. 
So Paul is called to be an apostle. Since he wrote so much of the New Testament, we tend to clump him into the 12, which I don't think is a bad idea. Um, and he has a certain amount of authority that you would see reserved for the 12. So when he calls himself that he's, he's called to be an apostle, um, I think it can be both. It can be both of these things. He's called to be a missionary, but he's called to be a missionary with a certain amount of authority from Jesus Christ himself, because I can't think of anybody else in the New Testament beyond Paul or after Paul, who the whole, who Jesus Christ appears to personally and commissions them the way he did Paul. So this is why Paul is a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, what he says next is he has set apart for the gospel. So we've heard gospel a number of times. What is gospel? What gospel is, is it's good news. Euangelon um, is the Greek word. The U at the beginning is, is the prefix meaning good. And angelon um, when we think of angel, we think of this majestic uh, being that's supernatural. Um, what that actually means is messenger. So what this is getting at, the word gospel is good news, good message. And so the gospel that Paul has been set apart for is the good news, is some good news. We haven't defined it yet, but it's good news. So whatever it is, you want to hear it. Now, what he says is he's set apart for the gospel of God. Um, prepositions are funny things. Um, what does it mean, gospel of God? Is it the good news about God? It's this message of God? Or is it this gospel that belongs to God? It's God's message, God's gospel, God's good news. Um, what, what we'll see is it's probably both. It probably goes either way. So it's the good news of God. This, this gospel originates with God. It doesn't originate with Paul. It doesn't originate with anybody else. It is God's gospel. And so it is, he's set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through the prophets in his holy scriptures. So which he promised. This gospel is something that God has promised. And, and really, that's the nature of true, real faith, is to hear God's promise. He said, I will do this, and to say, I believe that. I trust that. I am hoping, Lord, that you will fulfill that promise. And so that's what the, the heart of faith is, is to hear God's promises, to believe them, and to hope in them, to put your, your faith in them. So this is what he's promised, so God's good news, is something that he's promised. It's something that we're called to believe and to trust in. And he's, he promised it beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So this gospel of God, this, this promise of God, is not something brand new that nobody's ever heard of before. It is something that God has been saying throughout history, and he said it through his prophets. Um, but he didn't just say it through his prophets and it got dropped. As his prophet spoke this, it was recorded for us in Holy Scripture. And what we see in the Bible a couple of places is these things were written down for us. So this good news was promised through the apostles, or through the prophets. So the folks in the Old Testament had it, but it's been promised to us because the fullness of it has come. So what is this gospel, this great news about? Well, the next thing he says is he's, he's um, he's promised it beforehand through the prophets through in his holy scriptures, and it is concerning his son. So whatever this good news from God is about, is, 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 whatever it is, it is concerning his son. So that's the good news, is, is it's about his son. Um, that's what the gospel is about. Now, God has a son. Um, God has a number of sons, according to scripture. Which one is Paul talking about? So, for example, um, in Job 1.6, the sons of God appear before God in heaven, and Satan is among them. That's, that's the angels parading before God. They're called sons of God. 
According to Luke 3.38, the end of Luke's genealogy of Jesus, it is Adam who is God's son um, because God created him in the garden. Uh, according to Hosea 11.1, uh, Israel is his son. That's where God says, out of Egypt, I have called my son. And then according to the covenant that God made with David, um, 2 Samuel 7.14, uh, he refers to David's offspring. He says, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. So the kings of Israel could be considered the son of God, a son of God. So this message, this good news is concerning God's son. And so who is he? Well, the very next thing that, that Paul tells us is this son of God is descended from David according to the flesh. So he's descended from David. So that eliminates the angels because angels, David didn't give birth to angels. It eliminates Adam because Adam was the first man. And it eliminates the nation of Israel because he was their king. He wasn't their father. So perhaps it's the kings because they would have descended from, um, from uh, David. And, and also it says that it's descended from David according to the flesh. So that's another reason it can't be angels. Angels don't have flesh, they're spirits. So he is descended from David. And so now we've narrowed our, narrowed, narrowed our scope down. And so what else do we learn about this son of God who this gospel is about? Well, he was declared to be the son of God in power. So this was important to, to catch this. He's declared to be the son of God. He didn't become the son of God. He didn't become adopted as the son of God. The declaration was, this is the son of God. And that was done in power. It wasn't done in some secret lab, someplace, you know, hidden in the caves of Qumran or something like that. This was a declaration and it was done in power. And so how was it done? What, what was it? We need to have this bit of information to lead us to who the Son of God, this gospel, is about. Well, it was, he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. So this, this declaration was according to the spirit. It was by the spirit. It was a function of the spirit, and it was a spirit of holiness. Well, if you've read through Kings and Chronicles, that eliminates pretty much all the kings. There's, there's no spirit of holiness there. Um, and then the, the one kicker, the one that really sums it up for us, and this really is the end of his list too, he says, he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So of all the possible candidates for who could this son of God be, there's only one of them who is raised from the dead. And it is his, it's in his resurrection that he was declared with power to be the actual son of God. Um, the accusations that were hurled at Jesus in, in uh, his final days before he was put on trial is uh, they tried to pin on him blasphemy because he said he was son, God's son. Romans don't care about that. They tried to pin on him the fact that he was Messiah and that's a king, and, and that was what finally got them. And that's exactly where Paul goes next. He was, um, he was declared to be the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, and then he gives us the answer, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's who it is. That's who our, the gospel is about. The gospel is concerning. It's from God and it's concerning Jesus Christ, our Lord. So Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is a person. He came according to the flesh. He is the son of God. He's descended from David. That's what our genealogies in the gospel show us is he's a descendant of David. He's come in the flesh. He died 
and he was raised in power by the Spirit, declared, not changed into or not adopted. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is Christ, our Lord. Uh, Christ is the Greek word Christos, which is what is used to translate the Hebrew word for Messiah. And so what it, what it means is, Christos means anointed. So Jesus is not, Christ isn't his last name, it is his status. He is the anointed one. So what does that mean? Well, according to the Pharisees in Luke 23, 2, as they're hurling accusations at him, they say, he claims he's the Christ, which is a king. And that really fits with what the rest of the Bible says, because in Samuel, what David says is his friends keep telling him, look, Saul's going to kill you. Just kill him and be done with it. And David says, I will not lay my hand against God's anointed. So even a horrible king like Saul is still God's anointed. It is a kingly office. So when we say Jesus Christ, we're saying Jesus, our king, or Jesus, the king. Jesus, the one who is anointed to be the king. And that's why what follows is he says, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And isn't that exactly right? Lord can be a term of respect. And it's a few places in the Bible, it's used almost like sir, if we were saying sir to somebody. But it can mean much more than that. It can be a, a status symbol, a, a position of power and authority. This is my Lord. This is the one who's over me. But what's even more striking is if you read through the Old Testament, and every time you see Lord, when it's referring to God, capital L, and then the small, small capital letters, Lord, think Yahweh. That's God's name. That's how that's translated. And it's, it's translated as Yahweh. And then come and read the New Testament, and every time you see Lord, think Yahweh. And it, it is striking because when we say Jesus is our Lord, the Jewish mindset at that time couldn't help but hear our Lord and think the name of God. So this is who our Jesus Christ is. This is who the gospel is about, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so then Paul says, this is the gospel. This is what it's about. This is the center. Jesus is the gospel. And now he goes on. He says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Um, we is a plural word. So does that mean that we all have received grace? All of us have received grace? Yeah, absolutely it does. Does that mean all of us have received apostleship? That's not necessarily true. We are sent, we're told to, uh, to carry the, uh, the gospel to the ends of the earth, but does, it doesn't put us all in the position of apostle. So the idea there is Paul is using we is a sense of himself. This is how I've received it. And sometimes we use it that way, don't we? See, I just did. We. I, sometimes I use it that way. And we can use we as a, a way of speaking about ourselves. So I think that's what Paul is saying is this gospel concerning Jesus Christ is, is come to Paul through Jesus Christ. He's received grace. And we'll, we'll understand grace better as we go through the book. And he's received his apostleship from Jesus. And, and that's what we saw in Acts is Jesus commissioned him on the road to Damascus. So what is the function of Paul's apostleship? What is his role? He says that it is to bring about the obedience of faith. Um, to bring about the obedience of faith. Um, one second. I'll find it again. To bring about the obedience of faith for the, his namesake amongst all the nations. So this is Paul's commission. This is, you get that idea that he might be hitting them up to say, look, I'm going to continue my missionary journey and I need you to be my base. My commission is to bring about the obedience of faith to all the nations, to bring it to everywhere. And so what does he mean by obedience of faith? Um, 
is faith obedience or is obedience faith? So there's a couple of ways that we can understand this. You could say obedience of faith means obedience that comes from faith. Um, so what you could say is, okay, now you're saved by faith, and now you have to do this obedience. This obedience is the next step of what you have to do. So believe in Jesus, and now go do this obedience. Um, in verse 15, he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So he, he wants to, to, to come to them and, and preach them because there is a church there. Um, so he's, he's not saying, let me come and preach the gospel to you so that you can become obedient. Um, what he says is you need to hear the gospel. Uh, but he doesn't want to build on another's foundation. So they're already in that position of being saved. So to say the obedience of faith to all nations, then he wouldn't preach it to them because they've already got the faith. And so they must already be walking. But he's eager to preach to them. So one of the things to keep in mind here is he's eager to preach the gospel to them because we need to hear it again and again. Um, the gospel, the, the, the faith part is the gospel he's just announced, with the, which is to trust in Jesus Christ. So that isn't, now go work hard. It isn't, now go do this, now obey. Um, that's not the message he wants to come and teach, tell them. He wants to come and preach to them Jesus Christ again. So obedience that comes from faith doesn't seem to really capture all of it. Um, it doesn't seem to sum it all up. It sounds almost like, well, you've been saved by faith, now get to work. And, and that's just not helpful. So what about the other way of looking at it? Obedience that is faith. So one is obedience comes from faith. The other possible interpretation is obedience that is faith. In other words, I'm going to preach to you, and the gospel is you must believe, and that's it. So that's your obedience is to believe. Um, the problem with that idea is it, it kind of excludes any obedience after that. Look, I, was, I, I walked out 20 years ago, and that's all I have to do, right? Um, is, is I just believe the gospel, and, and that's, that's all I've got to do. Um, but that's not how the Bible portrays saving faith. Uh, what Paul will say later in chapter 6 is, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died, live, uh, died to sin still live in it? So to saying obedience is only the act of believing doesn't quite capture it either, does it? So you got one, which is obedience, which comes from faith, which sounds like believe and now get to work. And the other one is just believe, and that's the work you have to do. And neither one of those really capture the way the Bible portrays the relationship between faith and obedience. Uh, faith and obedience, as we'll see as we continue through the book of Romans, they belong together. But there's a priority and there's a way to fit them together, which we'll, we'll explore more. So he's, he's um, his commission is to bring the obedience of the faith to the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus. Um, so why does Paul do missions? Um, what is this, the, um, the, the point of Paul's doing missions? He says, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ um, for the sake of his name. So why he does missions is not because, oh, these poor lost people are going to go to hell if I don't bring them the message. That's true. But that's not the primary reason for doing missions. That's not the ultimate reason. There's, there's something that is even more important than that, that that fits into. And he does it for the sake of the name. He, he is doing missions primarily because God is that important. And so he, is, he says, I am under obligation to both Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, 
So ultimately, Paul has this mission to these people. He has an obligation to bring that to those people, but he does it for Jesus' name, for the sake of his glory. That's why he's doing it. So he has an obligation to bring it to the the, uh, Greeks and the barbarians, but that's where God's glory will be made more manifest. That's what will be the most glorious. So he wants to bring the glory of salvation to people because that's his commission is to make more of God. Um, If he lopped it onto people and said, I just do it for people's sake, they wouldn't be able to sustain it. Um, That's not big enough. That's not a big enough reason. Um, the, the reason has to be big enough to actually carry it throughout the entire world. Um, so the next section, verses 7 through 15, we kind of covered a lot of the really important parts in the introduction as far as when things happen. He writes to those who are in Rome, uh, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I think we blow past the grace and peace to you part because we see it in almost all of Paul's epistles. But you have to understand those two words, grace and peace. Um, the Jewish greeting was shalom, which is peace, kind of roughly translated. It was, it was at, its, at its core, the idea of peace. So he's greeting the Jews with a traditional Jewish greeting, which is shalom. But he's also greeting the Gentiles with a traditional Gentile greeting, which is charis, or grace. And, and what that means in, in uh, the greeting context is, is good wishes to you, or may things be pleasant for you. Grace will take on a much bigger uh, theological meaning in, in our epistle, but that's what he's, he's issuing to the church is I want grace and I want peace for you. So he's greeting both sides of the equation and he's bringing both. He doesn't say grace to you Jews or Greeks and, and peace to you Gentiles. He says grace to you and peace. So he he's wants them both to experience both of those blessings. Um, so we've touched on a lot of this throughout the, uh, the, the uh, introduction, but uh, the next thing I'd like to hit is he says that we may be mutually that we may mutually encourage each other's faith, both yours and mine. That's why he wants to come and visit Rome is he wants to mutually encourage each other's faith, and and that's really something that's important. That's something that we have to do. That's why we meet together regularly um, for the socialization and and the, the camaraderie and joking around. But also, um, if we're doing these as Christian meetings, we're there to encourage each other's faith too. And that's something that we need. That's, that's not a byproduct or a nice extra thing to have. It's something that's really important is we need to be, get together. We need to get to, to come together and share what we have of the gospel, share what we have of God together to encourage each other, to build up each, other, each other's faith. And so that, that's his reason for writing to Rome. That's why he's coming. So now the last portion is verses 16 and 17. And what he does here is we got some of what the gospel is at the beginning. And and there was plenty of theology packed in there, wasn't there? We learned an awful lot about the gospel. But now he's going to bring it in a a nutshell form, which he will spend the rest of the book unpacking for us. So verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek, for in it, the righteous of, righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This gospel, this message is the heart of Paul's ministry. It's what he's about. And what he says is, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Well, if it's the gospel concerning the Son of God, what, what is there to be ashamed of? Well, look at it also from this other perspective. He's not ashamed of a poor Jewish rabbi who was executed by Romans in the most shameful way. 
hung naked on a cross, exposed, and, and had he not died so suddenly, which surprised Pilate, he could have been out there for days. It was a shameful way to die. But Paul looks at it and says, I'm not ashamed of that. He's, he's not ashamed of the truth that we are incapable of saving ourselves, that we're all sinners. As a matter of fact, Paul would have gone on to say, I am the chief of sinners. So that is not a source of shame for him. He says, I'm not ashamed of this truth, this idea that we are all broken, messed up people, that we are all turning away from God, that we are all in this situation where we need salvation to come to us. That's not something to be ashamed of. He says he's not ashamed of the fact that many of those who will hear it, this, this wonderful good news, this gospel, will consider it offensive and foolish. That has been his, his history in Acts, hasn't it? He goes into a synagogue, he preaches. Some of the people go, this sounds beautiful. I want to know more about that. Others say, oh, this is garbage. This isn't true. We're not believing that. Even that, it was a source of frustration for him, but it wasn't a source of shame. He's not ashamed of the fact that not everybody is getting on board with his message. And he's not ashamed of his rejection and his beatings that he receives because of it. So it wasn't just that people go, eh, you, you don't know what you're talking about. What this gospel brought to him personally was repeated beatings, shipwrecks, um, um, persecutions, jail terms, all of that. What waits for him in Jerusalem is the culmination of all of that. His own people will turn against him, try to kill him, and then turn him over to the Gentiles and lie about him to get him arrested and, and executed. And all, despite all of that, he says, you know what? I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why is that? Why, Paul? Why can you not be ashamed? He says, because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. So despite all of those shameful aspects of it, or what the world would consider shameful aspects of it, what that shows is God's power to save. And that's exactly what Paul will teach us later on. He says, Jesus told him, my strength is perfected in your weakness. So in all of those shameful and weak things, that's where God's power shines through. This is the power of God for salvation. It shows that. That's why we should not be ashamed of it. Jesus' death and resurrection. Remember, he was proclaimed to be the, the son of God by power in his resurrection. Jesus' death and resurrection broke death. It was a shameful death. It was, it was humiliating. And yet, through it, God's power broke death. Jesus' death and resurrection, as we'll see as we work through the, God, the, the, the epistle, broke sin. It broke the hold that sin has on people. It says you can't threaten people with death and eternal hell because I have broken the power of sin. Jesus' death and resurrection did that. Jesus' death and resurrection overcame the world. The mocking and, and the, the, the scoffing and the foolishness and all of that stuff that people yell at it. Jesus' death and resurrection overcomes all of that. It says you can't, you can't just dismiss this out of hand. And Jesus' death and resurrection defeated the shame because he took the shame for us. He, he's the one that hung on a cross. We didn't. He's the one who left his position of glory and majesty in heaven, took on a human nature. He, he, according to the flesh, he took the flesh and, and became humbled, humbled to the point not just of human, but servant. And so Jesus' death and resurrection defeats and breaks our shame. So this is the power of God to salvation, but it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It, it, is, is, it is based on belief. 
So is it the power of God to salvation for everyone who's good enough? Well, I can't come to Jesus because I'm not good enough. Is it the power of God for salvation to those who are rich enough to afford it? If you can, if you can handle enough money, um, is it enough to those, or is it the gospel? Is it the power of God for salvation to those who are born into the right family or nation? No, he goes next and he says to the Jew and to the Gentile. That, that, that blows that away. And is it strong enough? Is it enough to carry us, to lead us to salvation? Yeah, that's the power of God to salvation. That's, that's what it's about. This power of God breaks down that wall, that, that division between Jew and non-Jew. It's, it's applicable to everybody. It's good enough for everybody. This gospel originates with God. It's about God and what he's done in his son. It's about his son coming in the flesh, raised by the spirit. It's a Trinitarian. It's the three together working in this. And it's not a new thing. It's something that God had proclaimed through the prophets a long time ago. So that's the power of God for salvation. And so then verse 17, for it is the righteousness, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. The righteousness of God. So what does that mean? What is the righteousness of God? Is it an attribute of God? Is it God's personal holiness and righteousness? Um, is it the righteousness of God, the status that he gives to us? Um, or is it the righteousness of God, what we see him doing? Um, this actually had been mishandled by the church for a while because what happened was the church early on translated the Bible into Latin. And so when you looked at this idea of the righteousness of God, it was terrifying because the, the way it came across in the Latin, the, the, the way they used the word for justification, which we'll come across in a little bit, was justificare, which didn't mean to proclaim righteousness. Righteous, It said to make righteous, to, to infuse righteousness into a person. So what that meant was when you read this, you heard about the righteousness of God, and saying the righteous shall live by faith, the righteous will be, have a faithful life, and then to look at yourself and go, but I'm not righteous. I'm not living this perfect faithful life. I'm, I, I look at these saints that I'm told about, and I'm not like them. Now what do I do? And so what happened with, with Martin Luther is in, in the 1500s, Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk, and he's reading this, and he was terrified because he knew he wasn't good enough. He knew he wasn't righteous. And so he's looking at this and going, I don't have the righteousness of God. I, I haven't got it. Look, I, I coveted Brother Andrew's bread morsel this morning. Um, my mind drifted during prayers. I, I'm not righteous enough. What do I do? And his confessor finally said, Luther, why don't you get busy with something important? Um, teach the book of Romans. So what happened was this is around the time of, of slightly after the Renaissance. And what one of the things that was recovered in the Renaissance was um, classic literature. And so now the church has got Greek manuscripts in their hands instead of the Latin Bible. And so when Martin Luther looked at this and he saw what was going on, he, he saw that the word was not justificare, but diokesune, the Greek word. And in the Greek word was not infuse righteousness into person so they can be saved. The Greek word was to proclaim or declare to be righteous. It was a legal status. Is, is the judge would look and say, you are determined to be righteous, not because of what you've done, not because of what you've accomplished, but because the judge said you are. It was a proclamation. And so that was liberating to Luther. He went, so it's not about if I'm good enough or bad enough. It is the righteousness of God is revealed as he proclaims me to be righteous based on 
the, um, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that last section, quoting from Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. What a liberating moment. The righteous shall live by infused righteousness if they perform it well enough. Nope. How are we declared to be righteous? How is it that we walk in righteous? How do we live a life of righteousness? By faith. And that is the nature, that is the heart of Paul's gospel is not try harder. It's not believe, but then work at it really hard. That was Galatians error. What the gospel of of, uh, Jesus Christ, as Paul tells us, is it is God is righteous to do something that makes it possible for him to declare us righteous. And what he does, we'll find out. Now, where we're going next week as we start into um, the rest of chapter one is Paul has got a, a mission to make that gospel make sense. The first thing that he has to do before he can get us saved is he has to get us lost. And so where he's going to start with is he's going to start with what is our problem? And our problem is sin. And, and who has sin? Who is guilty of sin? And that's where we're going to come into that. Is it us or them? Um, he's dealing with it in the context of Jew or Gentile, but it could be anybody. It, it could be uh, we, the way we could apply it today is not necessarily Jew or Gentile. It could be anybody. Can, are, are, can they be saved? Look at how much they sin. Look at how bad they are. And so what he's going to do next week is, is he's going to start with the, the problem. What is our problem? We're not righteous. And, and that's where we're going to go next week. So that's just the introduction. <laughs> There's so much theology packed into just the introduction. Um, it, it's a pretty amazing thing. This is why this has been called the greatest lover, letter ever written. Uh, there's never been anything like this before. It is one of the greatest pieces of literature in human history. Um, and I, I heard about an English professor who was lamenting the fact that they don't teach the King James Bible in schools anymore. Um, he said, because how are we supposed to understand English if we don't understand the King James Bible? And, and how are we supposed to understand literature if we can't study the book of Romans? Um, there's so much in there. So that's, that's why it's exciting and intimidating to begin to work through this is, We've got this, this beautiful Mount Everest of literature in front of us, and we've got to handle it well. So let's pray that God will show us how to handle this well. But most importantly, let's pray first of all that the gospel is what we're hoping in. Not ourselves, not our own ability, not our own righteousness, but the gospel. And recognize that the gospel, first and foremost, is about God. It is concerning, it is the gospel of God. It's concerning his son. And we are beneficiaries of that. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this brilliant book that you inspired Paul to write to us. And I pray, Lord, that um, we would hear the message of the hope we have in the gospel. Lord, that we would abandon any hope we have in ourselves and just trust in what you've done. So Lord, lead us through this book now and help us to understand the relationship that the law has to us and what it can't have to us because your righteousness has made this happen. So Lord, be glorified, we pray in your message. Amen.